Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, we've been in a sermon series called um, Back to Life, and over the past few weeks, we've been looking at um, stories from the Gospels of where Jesus miraculously and physically raised dead people back to life again. And as we're in this sermon series, we're getting ready for the greatest resurrection story next Sunday. Spoiler alert, Jesus coming back to life again. But we've looked at the story of of Jairus' daughter, the little 12-year-old girl who died, and then Jesus went and raised her back to life. Last week, we looked at the story of the widow of Nain, who during the funeral procession, Jesus went and like funeral crashed and like prayed over the body and raised the young man back to life again. And today we're going to look at the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is an iconic story in scripture. It's this phenomenal story of this man who was dead for four days, and then Jesus went and raised him back to life again. It's, it's miraculous, it's incredible, it's almost unbelievable. It really is impossible. But um, I remember growing up in the church, it was one of those stories, um, it's like one of these iconic stories, sort of like, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, and David and Goliath, the feeding of the 5,000. And for me, Lazarus was right up there with one of those. Um, I don't know if you grew up in an old school church that had like the flannel graph, but that's what I grew up with, and I think we should bring it back because it is solid. Yeah, thank you, Roger. (laughs) Because I remember my Sunday school teacher talking about the story of Lazarus, and you know, they they had the big flannel flannel graph here and there was like a tomb on it and there was a stone over the tomb and then there stood Jesus and then Jesus said Lazarus come forth oh I forgot this they would roll the stone away and then Jesus would say Lazarus come forth and then there at the entrance of the tomb you would see this man who was like wrapped head to toe in cloths his face covered standing there like a mummy who had just come back to life again and as a little girl in the church I was like whoa (laughs) this is amazing It's like the stuff of modern day TV shows. Like if you're into shows like The Walking Dead or whatever, that's like this thing right here. It's like out there stuff. And I I just grew up in the church thinking, wow, like the Bible is awesome, the stuff that's in there. And so it's so fun to be able to share with you this morning on the story of Lazarus. And we could talk all day just about the fact that a man who was dead for four days came back to life again. Like we could hang out there for a long time. But what I want to do this morning is I actually want to zoom out a little bit and talk about the significance of the story of Lazarus, not only where it's at in the book of John, but what it meant for the life of Jesus and subsequently what it means for our lives today. So as we do that, I want to encourage you to get your Bibles out if you have your Bibles this morning. Um, If you have an iPad or a phone, whatever the case, open up your Bible app and let's pray as we go into the Word this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are alive and that you are the God who takes dead things and brings them back to life again. God, and we thank you, we thank you for your word that it is the living word. It is God breathed. And so we pray today, Lord, as we dive into your word, that you would breathe life through the words that are spoken and into our souls, into our spirits, that we might come alive again in the places that are dead, in the places that are broken, that you would speak your life, Lord Jesus, and that we would have the courage to respond to what you're speaking today. In Jesus' name, everybody said? 
Amen. So today we're going to look at John 11 and a little bit of 12. As we dive into that passage, I want to look at the context of what is happening in the book of John. So what's interesting is the story of Lazarus is only found in the gospel of John. You would think that it being the iconic story it is and like the amazing miraculous story that it would be in all of the gospels and there's a lot of different theories and ideas behind this but the one that makes the most sense to me is that John was the latest gospel compiled. Mark was the very first one around 65 CE and then we have Matthew and Luke that were written around 85 CE. And then John was the latest around 90 CE. And so if you actually look at the scope of um, what was happening in that time period, the idea is perhaps the other gospel writers left out the story of Lazarus because Lazarus was still alive and it was to protect him. Because in John 12, 10, and 11, it said that the chief priests not only were opposing Jesus for what he had done, but they were also trying to kill Lazarus to try to squelch um, what had happened, to hide it. And so perhaps the reason that it's only written in John is that Lazarus had then died <laughs> the second time, and so then they ended up putting it in the Gospel of John. So I think that's an interesting theory. But regardless of the reason, it is only found in the Gospel of John. And the gospel writer, John, uses it very strategically in the gospel account. The, the goal of the book of John, it's, kind, it's a very different gospel if you've read it in the other gospels. The, the book of John is a very unique one. And the entire goal of the book of John, it says in John 20, 31, is this. It says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the entire book is compiled in a way to set up these miraculous signs that you see who Jesus is, you have an opportunity to believe in him as a result of it, and then you can find life in him as a result of those things. And so the whole first half of the book of John, John 1 through 12, John sets up these signs. There's seven specific signs. And what they are is they're miracles that Jesus did. He strategically picks them um, sequentially to show more and more the miraculous power of Jesus, his power and his authority. And then at the end of each sign that he shows, people have an opportunity to believe. And so they are, the very first one in the book of John is Jesus turning the water into wine. The second is healing the nobleman's son, healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, feeding the multitude, walking on the water, healing the man born blind, and then they all culminate into this final seventh sign in, in John 11, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. What's interesting, as you see in the book of John, as you read through it, is that not only does each miracle further prove who Jesus is, but at the same time, they bring about more and more opposition against Jesus from the Pharisees. So from the very beginning, Jesus turns water into wine, and people are like, whoa, who is this guy? And the Pharisees are like, whoa, who is this guy? And as each one happens, more and more people are amazed by Jesus and believe in him, and then more and more the Pharisees oppose him and reject him and get more and more angry at him. Each one causes more controversy. And so the raising of Lazarus, which is the greatest sign of all in this gospel, shows not only Jesus's incomparable power and authority over life and death, but it is also the final straw for the Pharisees. It's what leads them to kill him. 
That's one of the significant parts about the story of Lazarus. It is a pivotal miracle in the book of John, which starts the sequence of events that lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. Because right after John 12, then starts the passion narrative, and then you get the rest of John, John 13 through 21. So Lazarus is this pivotal moment in the book of John where everything comes to a head, and then it goes down from there. If you've uh, studied like narrative story arcs, Lazarus is like the moment, the culmination point, the climactic uh, moment of the gospel. So the story of Lazarus holds an incredible amount of significance, not only in how crazy the miracle is, as we know from the flannel graph days, but also in what it means in the life of Jesus. Jesus raises Lazarus to life, knowing that it will cost him his own life. That is what's at stake in this story. In this miracle, we see Jesus fully yielding to the will of God, and to his plans and purposes, not only for Jesus' life, but for all of humanity. There's intentionality to what's happening. There's pain involved. There's surrender involved. And this is really, really important for us to know and for us to see as we dive into the story today, because when we look at stories like the raising of Lazarus and other amazing miracles in Scripture, we often only see through the lens of triumph, but we fail to realize the incredible challenges that have led up to the moment that we're reading about. And if we don't have an accurate lens of what's happening in scripture, we won't have an accurate lens for our own lives. We'll lean into part two of the story without realizing that there is a part one. We'll expect victories without battles. We'll expect miracles without impossible situations. And when we encounter pain and disappointment in our lives, we'll think that there is something wrong with us or wrong with the path that God has us on, failing to realize that we are in good company and that we're in good hands. And so that's what the story is about. So with that, Understood. Let's jump into John 11 today, the story of Lazarus. And I'm just going to read a portion of the narrative. You can follow along as you'd like um, on your own Bibles. Start with verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 3. The sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Verse 6. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Kind of like, we don't really have to go. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, you guys, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17, on his arrival to Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. 20, when, Mary, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And then there's an exchange between Jesus and Martha, which we're going to look at in a little bit. In verse 28, it says, Martha went back, called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply and the Jews who had come along also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. 35, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in all of the Bible. This morning, I want to look at three distinct principles that we need to understand as we're looking at the story of Lazarus and what they mean for us as we follow the path to God's plans and purposes for our lives. And the first one is this. The path to God's plan often requires pain. The path to God's plan often requires pain. In this passage that we just read, we see this in three very distinct ways in the individuals that we encounter. We see it in the disciples, we see it in Martha and Mary, and we see it in Jesus himself. With the disciples, you see in this passage that they are not thrilled at the idea of going back to Judea. Judea was an area that had the town of Bethany, which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. It was about, Bethany was about two miles away from Jerusalem. And so it's this area that they are very familiar with and that they had been to a lot of times, but they left for a very specific reason. And the reason is because every time they go there, the Pharisees try to stone Jesus or arrest him. And so they got out of there because Jesus said, my time has not yet come. So when Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick and dying and is asked to go back there, the, the uh, disciples are like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Do you realize what's going to uh, happen if we go back there? They tried to stone you the last time we were there. They feared for Jesus' life and for their own. And then Thomas says in verse 16, which is this interesting moment in Thomas's life because he's not usually known as like the faith-filled one in scripture. He sort of gets a bad rap. But he says, let us also go that we may die with him. So he's like, all right, let's do this thing. Let's go back there and let's die with Jesus. Like this is their expectation is that if they go back to this town that they will die. And interestingly enough, that is what happens just a little bit later. So their fears, their concerns are legitimate. They're real. Okay, there, is, there was pain involved in the disciples saying yes to following Jesus' plan and going back to Bethany. Okay? Next, Martha and Mary. They knew that Jesus loved them. It says that multiple times in the passage that Jesus loved Martha, he loved Mary, he loved Lazarus. They were friends of his. Jesus had spent time in their home. They, they helped sponsor So when Lazarus got sick, Mary and Martha knew that Jesus loved them, and they knew that he was powerful and that he could heal. So they send word, and they say, Jesus, the one that you love is sick. Will you please come and heal him? And then Jesus deliberately stays where he's at, which is about a day's journey away, for two more days. He deliberately stays two more days, pretty much waiting for Lazarus to die. Like, that feels a little jacked up right? 
And that was Mary 17. On his arrival to Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, this is verse 20, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. She's grieving. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then Mary ends up coming out, and she says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So here they were. They believed that Jesus was powerful. They trusted him. They knew that he loved them. And then they send for help. They ask for help, and he didn't come through. This, is, this was their perception. They're in pain. They're in anguish. They're grieving. They have so many questions. Why would you let this happen? This didn't have to happen. They trusted God's plan, and so much pain resulted from it. Just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Jesus, we trusted you. Like, and they're grieving. They're brokenhearted. They're brutalized by this process. And then we come to Jesus. Now what's interesting is up to this point is Jesus seemed to be like cool, calm, collected, very optimistic throughout the story. We see this in the way he interacts with the disciples. In verse 3, he says, this sickness will not end in death. Like he's, like, he's, he's uh, very confident. He says, no, it is for God's glory, so God's Son may be glorified through it. In verse 11, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And then 14, he's very clear, Lazarus is dead, but for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, let us go to him. So Jesus is like, he's like very calculated, cool. Again, he's optimistic. Like he seems like he's like, he knows the plan. He's sticking to the plan. He's staying on target, right? However, that doesn't mean that it's not pain-free because it says in 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then it says, Jesus wept. So Jesus wept. This is real grief. This is real pain that he's experiencing. This, this verse is the shortest verse in the Bible, but I think it is probably one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible, because have you, have you wondered before why he was weeping? Like, I, every time I come to this passage, I ask this question, and I have so many thoughts around it, and like, you know, commentators have like every thought in the world around why Jesus is weeping. Some of them just say, well, it's just like empathy. Like, he wasn't really sad, but he saw them crying, so he was like sad for them, sort of like when you're watching a really sad movie, and it's not actually affecting your life at all, but you see someone else crying, and then you like inevitably cry like any of you out there. I'm guessing Katie's like that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like that. Um, if you can watch beaches and not cry, you are like stone cold. But um, like this is a moment for Jesus where he perhaps is just seeing people crying and grieving and so he's crying because of that. But I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that. As I really like uh, dive into this passage and put myself in Jesus's shoes. I think that this is a unique opportunity to see like under the hood in the life of Jesus because we know that he's fully God. So like he 
He knows everything. He knows beginning to end. He's all powerful. Um, we know that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So like there's this like fully God side of him that we normally see in scripture with all of his miracles and stuff. But he was also fully man. He felt what we feel. He experienced what we feel. And I think that this was a moment where the reality of everything that was happening and his life came to a head and we see real legitimate grief. I think he's experiencing real grief of being present in the pain of his friends, not just empathy, but realizing that they are brokenhearted and in a sense, he's the one that caused the pain by having to stay two more days so that Lazarus would die. Like that's real stuff right there as a human, having to experience the reality of I had to make a choice that was in alignment with God's plan and it caused this pain that I am experiencing right now. I think part of the pain that he's experiencing is the fact that he is fully God and he knows the whole story. He knows the scope of human history because sometimes I read this and I'm like, Jesus, like obviously in just a moment you're gonna raise Lazarus again. Like you don't need to be crying. You know what's gonna happen. But I think he knows what's gonna happen. I think he knows all that has happened. He was there from the very beginning at creation. He was there when God created humanity and created the earth and said it is good. And he called humanity very good. We were created in the image of God to be fruitful and to multiply and to flourish. And then sin came in and jacked it all up and turned the lives that we were supposed to live into um, lives that turn into death and into decay and into destruction. And he's seen the dismantling of humanity. And now he's standing in this moment outside of his friend Lazarus's tomb, experiencing the effects of sin and death. He has saw from the very beginning and he's seen what sin has led to, but at the same time, he knows what's gonna happen, not only with the raising of Lazarus, but with his own life. He is getting ready because of what's gonna happen to go to the cross, because this is the moment that leads him to the cross. And we know when we, saw, when we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, God, if there is any other way, please don't make me go through this, but your will be done. Not what I will, but what, your, what you will. He knows the pain that is coming as well. And so I think in this moment, he's experiencing the reality of all of this, the pain of his friends, the pain of sin and death, the pain of what's to come and the, the surrender that he's going to have to model. What's important about this is just because you know all the pieces to the story doesn't mean that it's not painful. And a lot of times when we're in these moments of um, um, feeling the weight of our situation, we're like, God, if you would just tell me what the plan is, I would be okay. But I don't think that's always the case. Jesus knew the plan, and he was still experiencing pain. I think that he sees, and he knows, and he feels all of this. And as a human, he can't contain it anymore in this moment, even though he knows that God has a plan. And I'm grateful for this under the hood moment in the life of Jesus because it shows that just because that you just because you trust God and just because you know he's good and just because you know that he has a plan doesn't mean that it's easy. It's hard, it can be emotional and you can be real about that. We serve a feeling God, a compassionate God, a God who is with us in our pain. Amen. Amen. So sometimes the path to uh, God's plan requires pain. But along with that, point two, the second principle, is the path to God's plan requires yielding to God's will and to God's ways. When Jesus encounters Martha when he comes into Bethany, 
in verse 20. It says, Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went out to meet him. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 22, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Like, so she thinks Jesus is like giving him like a platitude, like, oh, he's in a better place. And she's like, I've just heard that a bunch the last four days. Thanks, Jesus. Like, I know. He's like, no, this isn't a platitude. This is a promise. Your brother is going to rise again. He says in 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And this is her moment to respond. In verse 27, she says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. This is Martha's moment of belief before the miracle even happens. Jesus gives her the opportunity to yield to his will and to his ways. She doesn't understand the plan. She's confused. She's hurt. She's grieving. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand the plan. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? She says, yes. And then we come to Mary, and she has an opportunity to yield to God's will and God's ways in this moment. It says in 29 that Mary got up quickly and went to Jesus. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. She fell at his feet, and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's interesting to me is that Mary says the exact same thing that Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but she takes a completely different posture. She falls down at Jesus' feet in grief and surrender. And what's interesting about Mary is every time we see her in Scripture, that is the posture that she's taking before Jesus. In Luke 10, when we have that story of Martha and Mary, you know, and Martha's like working in the kitchen, the busy bee, and then Mary's like hanging out with Jesus in the living room or whatever, it, she's at Jesus' feet. She's listening. She's learning. And Jesus said what she's doing is good. And then we see her in this moment, in a moment of grief, in a moment of brokenheartedness. And what does she do? She falls down at Jesus' feet. The next chapter, in chapter 12, after this story concludes, there's a meal being held in Jesus' honor, and it says that Mary came in, and she fell down at Jesus' feet, and she anointed his feet with perfume, that she cried tears that poured over Jesus' feet. She wiped them with her hair. She fell down in worship at Jesus' feet. Every time we see Mary in Scripture, she is falling down before Jesus and surrender. She's falling down with a posture of listening and learning, in moments of grief, and in moments of worship. Regardless of the circumstances of her life, she postures herself at the feet of Jesus. She consistently yields to God's will and ways, regardless of the pain. Then we come back to Martha again. In verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said, and here's Martha being Martha. But Lord, by this time, there is a bad odor, <coughs> for he has been there for four days. In the King James Version, she said, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> Which I think is a word we should bring back. 
This is kind of awesome. Um, so he stinketh. So she's like, she knows Jesus has a plan, and then she's like, no, 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 no. You can't actually remove the stone. It's too much. Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God? So the promise has been given to her that Jesus is going to rise Lazarus again, but there is a prerequisite. Roll away the stone. Let me deal with it. Let me have access to the situation. And Martha's like, no, it's embarrassing. I'm ashamed. It stinks. Jesus is like, that is the prereq. You have to let me have access. (coughs) Excuse me. So Martha yields to God's plan in the situation and lets them roll away the stone. So verse 41, they took, so they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So he's like, Jesus, or Father, I'm doing this for the people present so that they may believe. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, this is the moment, Lazarus, come out, or in the old King James, Lazarus, come forth, right? The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. So this is the moment of the passage, and we see this incredible demonstration of Jesus' power and his authority. We see triumph over death and over decay and over hopelessness. But this is also Jesus's moment to yield fully to God's will and ways for his life and what's to come because this moment will cost Jesus his own life. He's not moved by external forces. He's not moved by fear. He's not moved by the doubt or the unbelief of the people present. He's not moved by the confusion or the pain of what people are experiencing, but he, with clarity, courageously proceeds into what God has called him to. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Watch, watch, and Lazarus comes forth. So we see this yielding in Martha's life as she yields by saying, I believe and letting Jesus have access to the tomb. We see it in Mary's life as she falls down in surrender at Jesus' feet. And we see it in Jesus' life as he courageously responds to God's will and ways for his life. But we also see it in one other distinct group in this passage, and it's the crowd. The crowd is present the whole time watching all of this. Imagine being a fly on the wall for this little shindig. And it says, Jesus says to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus is standing there still completely covered. (coughs) So they take off the grave clothes. And then it says, verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. This is one response. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So this is their moment of decision. Just as John leads up to in his seven signs, they have an opportunity to respond. And there's a group of people present who say, yes, I believe, and they receive life in his name. And there's another group present that says, no. And they reject him. And not only do they reject him, but they go and tell the Pharisees what happened. It says that this is the Pharisees' response when they heard. 
in 11:47 through 48, they said, here is a man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This was their fear, losing their place and their nation. So in 53, it says, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This was their moment of decision. Why would they do this? They saw the miracle. They actually believed in the miracles because they knew that people would believe by seeing the miracles. The reason that they did this is because they had very narrow expectations of who Jesus was and what he should do for them. Very narrow expectations. A lot of people hoped that he would use his miraculous powers on their behalf to become an earthly king and establish the nation of Israel. Again, that's what they wanted. They wanted him to rescue them, the people of Israel, from the Romans. He came to rescue the world from the curse of sin and death. His plan was bigger and better than their narrow view. They wanted God to yield to their ways. They wanted him to ascend the throne as a king, and instead he ascended the hill to Calvary and became the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And not only did they miss the greatest rescue of all time, they were the ones who crucified him. So the path to God's plan requires yielding to his will and his ways and not our own. And third, the path to God's plan always results in God alone getting the glory. This was the plan from the very beginning. Jesus talks about it a couple times in the narrative. In verse 4, he tells the disciples, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In verse 40, he tells Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? God's glory was the plan. Jesus knew that the result would be the glory of God, both in Lazarus's story and in his story. But then in the next chapter, in chapter 12, after the story of Lazarus, after Jesus rides into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, which is what we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday, Jesus actually kind of tells them the full picture. He tells the rest of the story, and he actually explains what it looks like for God to get the glory. In John 12, 23 through 25, he says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's what God's glory looks like. And here's the thing, we love the idea of following God's plans and purposes for our life, because we love the idea of fruitfulness and harvest. We love the idea of miracles. I do, like I'm a fan. <laughs> but fruitfulness requires putting a seed into the ground and letting it die. The path to God's plan is often the same. Lazarus had to die in order for this miracle to happen. Jesus had to die in order for the world to be set free from the curse of sin and death. We have to die to ourselves. We have to pick up our cross and follow him in order to step into the plans and purposes that he has for us. 
That's how God gets the glory. We must yield our lives into God's will in order for God to get the glory on the other side. And it's often not how we think it's going to look. A lot of times we have very narrow expectations of what God should do and what Jesus should be for us. The Pharisees' greatest concern was keeping their platform and their power and their position. They were not concerned about God being in his rightful place. They were only concerned about losing their place. And sometimes we have that same posture in our lives. We pray, Lord, I want everything you have for me. Lord, use my life um, as long as it's easy and it's comfortable and I get the glory and the fame and the notoriety through it. We have very narrow expectations of how God should use our lives. We say we want God to get the glory, but what we really want is our glory. We want our promotion, we want our power, we want our face on the poster. But what if it means tragedy? What if it means pain? What if it means bankruptcy, job loss, setbacks, death? If we really want our life to be used by God, we need to let him do what will bring him the greatest glory. And that's what Jesus did. He raised Lazarus to life, knowing that it would cost him his own life. That's what's at stake in this story. That was the path to God's plan. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, I'll conclude with this. The worship team, you can go ahead and start coming up says, being found in appearance as a man, this is speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the plan. Let's stand. I believe that God has incredible plans and purposes for your life. We tell you guys that every Sunday, that we are here to help you discover and become everything that God has created you to be. And it's good. It is good what God has for you. And if you're experiencing pain today, I just want to say I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I know it's hard. Um, I don't quite know your specific situation, but I've walked through pain and loss before, and it is hard. It is brutal. And this last year, I've had to walk through some very um, distinct places of pain um, of the Lord refining my heart, um, yielding to him, truly giving up my will and my ways in order for him to get the glory on the other side. And it has been really hard. But I can tell you, I wouldn't trade it for the world because pain has a way of purifying your motives, your intentions, your desires to the place where you're, you're not looking at your own life and your checklist of like, God, if you could just do these things, that'd be great. But you're looking to Jesus, fixing your eyes on him. You're like, Jesus, I just want you. I just want what you have for me. And, and I had to come to a place in my life this last year where I really did, I put everything on the altar. Like, okay, Jesus, like I thought I knew the plan and uh, it doesn't seem to be going that way. And so 
here, here's everything, because like, obviously I don't know what I'm doing. And he took it and he purified my heart through it. And he ended up making something so much more beautiful out of it than I could have ever made myself. And the cool thing is, is my hands aren't on the levers anymore. Like, psh, they're like this rather than this. And so whatever happens, he's the one that gets the glory. I think we've all been in places like that before where we've experienced pain and we're questioning. But I just want to say, if you're in that place today, one, I'm sorry. And two, uh, you're in good company and you're in good hands. Because if you are falling down at the feet of Jesus like Mary did, he's going to take care of you. It's going to be good. You're okay. Okay? We can trust him. He does have good plans and purposes for our life. And it might not look like you think. Uh, it's probably way better than any checklist that you could ever create for yourself. I'll just tell you that. But it might not look like your checklist. Uh, in Ephesians 3.20, it says that he is going to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or imagine. That's the kind of God we serve. So maybe we need to let go of our narrow expectations and go like this <laughs> and let him actually make a beautiful life that he intended to make from the very beginning for his glory. Amen. So we're going to pray this morning. And I just want to take a moment to allow you to respond to the Lord in whatever way you need to today. Um, perhaps there is a, a specific point of the message that really resonated with you. Maybe it was the part about pain and you're walking through that. Um, and maybe you just need the Lord to come and be your comforter today and be real to your heart today. If that's the case, as we pray, I just want to invite you to do what we did during worship today. Just put your hands out and say, Jesus, I need you to come and bring life and comfort in this pain. Maybe you're um, like Martha and Jesus is saying, hey, let's roll away the stone. And you're like, no, <laughs> no, that stinks in there. And he's like, come on, uh, there's a prereq to the promise. You got to let me have access to the decay, to the stuff that is gross in there. And you're like, I don't want you to. Maybe this is your moment to say you can have access. Maybe that's the case today. And maybe, maybe you're, this is a moment for you like the crowd where you have seen the reality of who Jesus is, that he is a miracle working God. He's the God of the impossible. He's a God who takes dead things and makes them alive again. And this is your moment to respond and say, I believe. I believe Jesus and to receive life in his name. So whatever the case is for you, we're gonna pray and I'm gonna invite you to respond. Let's do that. Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, with open hearts and open hands, we just press into the reality of who you are today, God, that you are fully God, that you are the God of the impossible, the God of miracles, the God of the beginning and the end. You are the author and the perfecter. You wrote our story and you're the one that's gonna carry it out to completion. But you're also fully human and you've walked in our shoes and you understand the pain, you understand the reality. You are with us, God with us. And so whatever the need is in this place today, God, I ask for you to come and be you for whatever need is here today god if it's pain if it's brokenheartedness that you would come and be close you say that you are close to the brokenhearted so god i ask that you would come and and and, and bind up the wounds bind up the pain and be close and bring comfort lord jesus Lord, if there's people present today that they know there's an area of their life that is still um, in decay, God, that it's dead, and you're saying, let me 
have access to it. God, I pray for the courage with open hands and open hearts to say, come, do your thing in my life, Jesus. I give you full access to come and bring your miracle working power, to bring your life, to bring your resurrection to the places that are dark and broken and bound. In Jesus' name, speak life. Come forth. Come forth in the name of Jesus. Jesus' name. And God, for the people present here who maybe have never said yes, who have never said, Jesus, I believe, this is their moment. With open hands and open hearts, we say yes, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God who came to set us free. And so we say we believe in you, Jesus. We ask you to come and be the Lord of our lives. In full surrender, we give you access. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you that your plans are good and that you are the one that will bring them to completion. So we say, have your way, Jesus. We're all in. Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. If you responded to the Lord today in your seat with open hands and open hearts, I want to encourage you to also take that to the prayer station. Jesus called us to do life in community. Together, he told the community to remove Lazarus's grave clothes. He didn't have to stay bound like a mummy. So I would encourage you to take whatever it was and go talk to the prayer team today. If you said yes to Jesus for the first time, go talk to them about that. If you gave access to Jesus with the stone, go talk to them about that. Whatever it is, bring community around you so that you can walk this out, okay? I've got some action steps for you today, and it's very simple. We've looked at the book of John today. I would love for you to read the rest of the book of John this week. Take a snapshot of the screen, and these are some specific passages for each day as we're going into Holy Week, as we're preparing for Easter next Sunday. Love you guys.